Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. With us is Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tom, and and congratulations on all the great work you do day after day, year after year. Well, thank you, and congratulations on how well you and your campaign are doing here in this primary. I'm wondering, first of all, you know, uh, Bill Barr testifying before the Senate, and in many cases it seems, according to Pat Leahy anyway, filibustering and being deceptive. I wonder what your thoughts are on on the Attorney General. I think Leahy is absolutely right. I mean, what you're looking at is a kind of unique situation where the administration, through Barr, are refusing to give the information that the American people are entitled to have through the Congress. So I think he is stonewalling, and we have a right to know. I understand in the Senate there were hearings on Medicare for All. I missed those, but I know this is a big issue for you. In fact, you're the one who really turned it into a national issue. What happened, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, it's interesting. It's a big issue for me, but I think it's a big issue for the American people, Tom, and you know it that we remain the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. You've got 34 million people without any health insurance, yet even more who are underinsured. We pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. While the drug companies make billions in profit, one out of five Americans can't even afford the high prices that they're forced to pay. So I think, and the American people, I think, increasingly believe that the time is now to end private insurance domination over the healthcare system in America and move toward a Medicare for all healthcare system. Medicare now works quite well for seniors. No reason why it shouldn't be expanded to every man, woman, and child in this country. And when we do that, we end the absurdity of spending twice as much per capita on healthcare as do the people of any other nation. You're a family of four today, self-employed. You're spending $28,000 a year for healthcare, and the costs are soaring. And we have every single year, we're wasting many hundreds of billions of dollars on administrative costs, on billing, on excessive salaries for CEOs and so forth. So I think the American people want to see us move to Medicare for All. We have legislation in, which I would implement as president, 
to cut the cost of prescription drugs in this country in half so that we are paying the same prices that people around the world are paying. So this is a big deal, Tom, and we're going to stay on it. I've seen now a half a dozen times just in this last week commentators and, and even hosts on supposedly progressive television networks calling this proposal, Medicare for All, and many of the other proposals that Democrats are talking about as full-blown socialism, and it's going to turn us into the Soviet <laughs> Union and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, How- well, look, here's what we got, and I, and I you know, want people to appreciate this. Uh, what our campaign is now doing is taking on, obviously, Trump and the Republican establishment. We're taking on corporate America. But in terms of health care, we are taking on a new organization, which is being funded by the insurance companies and the drug companies. Now, if you were the head of uh, United Healthcare and you made $83 million in compensation last year, you know what? You don't want a Medicare for all. You are the head of Aetna, which merged, as you know, with CVS, and you got a $500 million bonus for bringing about that merger. It's a gentleman named Mr. Bertolini, head of Aetna. You don't want a Medicare for all single-payer program, so you're going to come up with all kinds of stuff. Now, I live, and you used to live in Vermont, right? We bought it on Canada. Canada has had a single-payer system for decades now. Every other major country on Earth has a variation. They're all a little bit different. Bottom line is all people get health care. Bottom line is private insurance companies do not make profits out of people's illness. Bottom line is that the cost of health care in all of those countries is significantly less. So you're going to hear all kinds of stuff. And a lot of the stuff comes from the many millions of dollars that the insurance companies and the drug companies are going to pour into this effort to defeat Medicare for all. But I got to tell you, I think we have the momentum here, and I think the uh, healthcare industry is very, very nervous that we will end up doing what every other major country on earth does. I think you've nailed it. I understand that you laid out a proposed change in our trade, uh, and you and yeah. I have been talking about this for over a decade. For a few years. Yeah. For a few years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, share the details with us. Well, you know, one of the areas where Joe Biden, Joe is a good friend of mine, and, and I know at the end of the day, no matter who wins the Democratic primary, we're all going to go forward together uh, to defeat Trump. But, you know, Joe apparently repeated that he was, he thought his vote for NAFTA was a good vote. He voted for permanent normal trade relations with China. Uh, you add those two trade agreements together, just those two trade agreements, it's a loss of over 4 million jobs in this country, where you have often profitable corporations shutting down in America because they don't want to pay workers here 15 or 20 bucks an hour. They prefer to go to China or Mexico and pay people a dollar or two dollars an hour. And I think, you know, we have got to end that. And one of the areas, I think, where we have, the government has a lot of leverage is to say to private corporations that if you want to shut down in America and go abroad, if you want to prevent your workers from uh, joining a union, if you want to have salaries, CEOs making three, four, five hundred times what your workers are making, you know what? You're not a good corporate citizen. And don't come around and ask for government contracts. So I think we have a lot of leverage on these corporations and tell them that they have got to stop their greed. I mean, what makes me sick to my stomach, and I have seen this time after time, and I think the American people disgusted by this is profitable corporations pay their CEOs outrageous levels of compensation. They're making all kinds of money. It's not like they're losing money. They shut down a plant or they 
tell workers you've got to pay more for health care. We're not going to raise your wages. I mean, corporate America has been waging a massive anti-worker effort for decades now. And it is time to use the leverage of the federal government and say, you want a contract? That's great. Treat your workers with respect. And among other things, that means you're not going to shut down in this country when you're profitable and move abroad. So I think that's real leverage. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Senator Sanders, thanks so much for dropping by today. And is there anything you wanted to add, by the way? No, that's about it, Tom. I think we covered some of the issues. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Senator. Great talking with you. Bye-bye. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together. And it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Okay, a few more things in the news that I think are worthy of our conversation here. Donald Trump is nearly finished with his goal of erasing every single one of Barack Obama's accomplishments so that history will not remember our first black president in any meaningful way. The last big piece was to take down the entire Affordable Care Act. The Trump administration filed a lawsuit to end the entire ACA. No more protections for people with pre-existing conditions. No more young people on their parents' policies till they're 26. No more health care for low-income working people anywhere in the United States. No more limits on how much profit health insurance companies can make off you or your policy. No more limits on them kicking you off your policies when you get sick. This is vicious petty and vile, and every American should be disgusted by it. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi has said Bill Barr, it was not a technicality when he lied to Charlie Crist. It was a crime. She just came right out and said it. I believe it was one of the MSNBC reporters, Casey Hunt, I think, asked her, well, then uh, what are you going to do about that crime? You going to send him to jail? At which point, uh, Speaker Pelosi began essentially stuttering. Well, uh, we, uh, and then she said, you know, we're beginning a process. And she didn't say, no, we're not sending him to jail. I mean, it's been, you know, it hasn't worked out this way since the 1920s or 1930s. But, you know, we have held people to account in the past who refused to come and testify before Congress. And, you know, frankly, I think that we need to again. And Jerry Nadler said, well, you know, we'll wait a couple of days and and decide whether we're going to charge him with contempt. I was frankly surprised they didn't do it this morning. I'm willing to wait a couple of days. I get it. You know, there's not this great sense of urgency because the more of this can be shifted into the election year, the more it's going to energize the Democratic base. It's also energizing the Trump base, by the way. So there's a risk here. And apropos of that, I just got this email from Donald Trump. Dear Fred. The lying left is at it again. Democrats are distraught over the fact that their two-year witch hunt found no collusion and completely exonerated, it's in all caps, President Trump. 
Rather than accept the facts, the radical left has decided to double down on their outrageous lies. We've seen them lie over and over again about President Trump, and now they're doing the same to Attorney General William Barr. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer want to blame Barr, an honest man who has devoted his life to public service, for the fact that they wasted two years over $30 million a year money on a conspiracy theory that turned out to be completely false. Patriotic Americans can't sit by and watch Democrats attack Attorney General Barr for doing his job. President Trump appointed Attorney General Barr because of his impeccable record of upholding the law and serving our great nation. Democrats want to tear him down because the facts don't line up with their wacky lies they've been telling the American people for the last two years. Please sign our official Stand with Attorney General Barr petition and donate to our campaign. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Anyhow, Ronnie in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's on your mind? I love your show, and I feel like I'm much more informed than my Republican husband. And the other night, we were watching the news, and they were talking about Venezuela. So I decided to test him a little and see what he knew, and he didn't know anything. So I started telling him just what I've learned from your show. But neither one of us know the origin of it. We Googled articles. The origin of what? Uh, well, the only thing we saw was people didn't participate in the election. Oh, so that's true here. That's true here. Actually, there were a lot of people who participated in the election. It was a fairly large election, but Guaido chose not to run in the election, so his position was to tell people don't vote. I, frankly, I don't have the turnout numbers right in front of me, but our turnout numbers are in the neighborhood of under 50% on off-year elections, and presidential sure. elections were under 60%, or we yeah. float around 60%. So justifying the invasion of another country by saying only about half of their eligible voters showed up to the polls is pretty thin gruel, I think, Ronnie. So Guaido said, don't vote, because a don't vote is voting for me. Because he couldn't run because he knew he'd people, lose. Right. And so even the people that did vote and overwhelmingly voted for Maduro, so all these countries are saying, no, it's Guaido. That doesn't right. make any sense. I know. I know. But see, Guaido represents the interests of the multinational corporations. And, sure. and he's a white guy, and all of the cabinet that he wants to bring in is white guys. And Maduro is a brown guy, and most all of his cabinet is brown guys. And most of the country in Venezuela is brown guys. And I'm using that word in, sure. in gender-neutral context. And in fact, Maduro has some women in his cabinet, and I don't know that Guaido does. But we need to acknowledge, you know, Venezuela is in a crisis. And a good chunk of that crisis has to do with corruption and mismanagement in their own government. And a lot of that happened under Hugo Chavez. And Maduro is not George Washington, and, and neither was Hugo Chavez. But the point is that it's their country. It's not our country. Right. I mean, it's, it's on a yeah. different continent, for God's sake. It's their country. And, like, I likened it to after the 2016 election, if Canada and France and Great Britain and Germany would just make statements saying, all right, Donald Trump won, but no, Hillary's the president. You know. And you right. could actually build a stronger case for that because Nobody she got more votes. Guaido got no votes right. at all. Right. But, but we would not allow other countries to tell us who our president is. So no. I don't understand why. And, and, like, everybody's supporting this. I don't get it. Yeah. I, I, and yeah, I'm not saying that he's a great guy, but you don't just take over somebody else's leadership. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. It's yeah, well, we have a me. long history of doing this, of messing with other countries, and then yeah. we get really outraged when another country messes with us. I think we all should take this as a lesson, you know, that, hey, maybe be a yeah. little more introspective at the very least. Ronnie, thank you for yeah. the call. I appreciate it. It's great thanks. to hear from you. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. So one of the things I've noticed about getting older is aches and pains. And uh, boy, CBD has really worked for me for a couple of years now. And, and recently, Louise and I have been using New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. Uh, it's great stuff. Uh, we love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. The CBD is non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory pro properties. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives. Grown in the United States, the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com, newleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. Newleafnaturals.com and the promo code TOM. Richard in Utah. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I have uh, two questions for you. Mm -hmm. If con Congress controls the, the purse for the federal government, why don't they just shut off the funds to the uh, Department of Justice? That's my first question. Well, yeah, let me answer it very is, quickly. The, it's because Congress is, is a word that encompasses both the House and the Senate. The Republicans control the Senate, so no legislation would, would be able to be passed right now that could cut off that funding, and it would also have to be signed by the president. Okay, second question is, how long uh, is it going to take for these courts to uh, make a decision on all these subpoenas once uh, they get there? Donald Trump is betting that the Supreme Court will drag this out and that none of these things will be litigated or, or decided in a way that could cause the release of his financial records or anything else until after November 3rd of 2020. This isn't actually a we're going to defeat them strategy. This is a we're going to delay them strategy. And he's betting that he can drag this out for about 16 months. I think the odds are that he's going to win that bet are better than 50-50, but they're not 100%. Well, so we're just going to have to wait until he, uh, his term expires before we get any kind of a solution to all of this mess. I, I all, think that's all the things very likely. Okay, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Richard. Good talking okay. to you. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's up? Oh, thanks, Tom. How you doing? Good. Um, what's on your mind? The corporate Dems, Tom, it's not that they're, they're cheating or lying or anything. You have to realize they have children and grandchildren. They have financial investments in the system. They don't want socialism. Why would they? They're vested in this system. Well, if you're talking socialism leave. as government control of the means of production and supply, there's not a single Democrat who is advocating that. You understand what I'm saying? People have investments. Their children and grandchildren have investments in the system. As James, during, during the socialist administration of Franklin Roosevelt, which, is, which was more radical, FDR's uh, wait, second, wait second Bill of Rights is more radical I'm, I'm than anything Bernie has proposed, the, the stock, stock market did great. Now, I'm a socialist. I, you know, I don't care what you are. I, you know, the, the reality is there's not a single Democrat who is advocating socialism and, and, or advocating anything that's going to hurt anybody's investments. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Barb, listening to WCPT in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Hey, Barb, what's up? 
Hi. I wanted to talk about the Affordable Care Act. I know we emphasize that 20 million people would lose their health care, but we fail to emphasize the fact that all people are affected. Even if you have a plan with your job, the lifetime cap will go. Yes. What you will see, if ACA is blown up, the health insurance companies will start this little dance that they did when my wife Louise had breast cancer and we got notified that we were approaching our lifetime limit, which would mean after the lifetime limit has been hit, you're no longer insurable, period. You know, you, you just can't be insured. Plus, this thing called rescission. If you get sick, they can just throw you off your policy. Just, hey, sorry, see you later, you're sick. They can go back to doing this. This is nuts, Barb. Right. I really wish that our politicians would quit just emphasizing the 20 million and women's, you know, which is, of course, part of it and very right. important. But we need to expand so that everybody understands that everyone, it's not just the 20 million, everyone will be affected, and especially yes. with that lifetime cap. And half of Americans have a medical pre-existing condition. And another half of Americans, and it's not the other half, but, you know, women, arguably simply being female is a pre-existing condition that is addressed under the Affordable Care Act. Things like prenatal care, birth control, things like that, that are unique to women, that that will all get blown up, you know, where that insurance companies have to cover these things. It's crazy. Barb, thank you for the call. Thank you very much. Grace in Glendale, California. Hey, Grace, what's on your mind? Hi, I just wanted to mention that one of the things we're also not talking about is the effect that the Venezuelan crisis is now having on Haiti because of the Petro Caribe fund and their inability to pay it back. And now those people, you know, their uh, oil prices doubled in a day or something. I mean, they're on the verge of revolution. I'm unfamiliar with this, Grace. Is this because Venezuela was supplying Haiti with oil or with money or what? Yes and no. So a deal was done back in 2006 between Hugo Chavez and Haiti, and it was a way for Haiti to have all the oil that it needed, but only pay 60% of it up front. The other 40% went into a fund that was to help the Haitian people with infrastructure and a variety of other things that they would pay back at an interest rate of only 1% per year. Uh -huh. So then when the giant, whatever it was, hurricane or whatever came through that was the giant crisis, earthquake, all of that that happened, I think, 2010, right. the United States started interfering to grab money out of that fund. They helped install a new government. They basically used it as a cover. They fought the fund in the first place. They didn't want it to happen at they all. They being we, right, and Grace? We, yeah, <laughs> okay. the United States. The government of the United States basically helped to install a U.S.-friendly leader there who had, I think, I don't know, six various, you know, PMs and all these different things right. that they're um, being Haiti stole yeah. money out of Haiti. And they've lost, I think it's $1.7 billion out wow. of the fund. But now that we've put sanctions on Venezuela, it's prevented Haiti from being able to pay back their money, and it's wrecked the entire deal. So suddenly, instead of their you know, being able to get all the oil they need, they can't anymore. They can't trade in foreign currency. And suddenly that's when a few months back, whenever it was, people were taking to the streets because I think it was in February and they still are. They're on the verge of revolution there wow. because they are basically being hit with, you know, double oil prices. I think their oil prices basically went up, doubled in a day. Yeah. And, and you can just imagine, you know, Tucker Carlson talking about this on Fox News. Well, this is what happens with s-hole countries that are run by brown and black people. See, look at Haiti's melting down. I told you so. 
Yeah, and the painful part is that I hear people on the left talking about how the you know, Maduro is so awful, and we have to put the sanctions on. We have yeah. to, you know, do something. Well, he's people. like I said, he's not George Washington. Other countries too. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not George Washington, but but on the other hand, he is not uh, Erdogan. We have it's it's nuts. Grace, thank you, for, no. thank you for the call. Thank you for informing me about the situation in Haiti. I need to do some uh, education. I need to educate myself on that. I appreciate the information. Thanks so much for the call. Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. We'll be right back. It's talk media for the sane among us, fair and only slightly unbalanced. This is the Tom Hartman program. We're reading from the Mueller report. This is page seven. This is chronicling Russian attempts to mess with the election. Page 7, post-2016 election. Immediately after the November 8 election, Russian government officials and prominent Russian businessmen began trying to make inroads into the new administration. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The Russian embassy made contact hours after the election to congratulate the president-elect and to arrange a call with President Putin. Several Russian businessmen picked up the effort from there. Kirill Dmitrev, the chief executive officer of Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, was among the Russians who tried to make contact with the incoming administration. In early December, a business associate steered Dmitriev to Eric Prince, a supporter of the Trump campaign and an associate of senior Trump advisor Steve Bannon. Dmitriev and Prince later met face-to-face in January 2017 in the Seychelles and discussed U.S.-Russia relations. During the same period, another business associate introduced Dmitriev to a friend of Jared Kushner, who had not served on the campaign of the transition team. Dmitriev and Kushner's friend collaborated on a short written reconciliation plan for the United States and Russia, which Dmitriev implied had been cleared through Putin. The friend gave that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kushner later gave copies to Bannon and incoming Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. On December 29, 2016, then-President Obama imposed sanctions on Russia for having interfered in the election. Incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn called Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak and asked Russia not to escalate the situation in response to the Obama sanctions. The following day, Putin announced that Russia would not take retaliatory measures in response to the sanctions at that time. Hours later, President-elect Trump tweeted, quote, Great move on delay by V. Putin. The next day, on December 31, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him the request had been received at the highest levels and Russia had chosen not to retaliate as a result of Flynn's request. On January 6, 2017, members of the intelligence community briefed President-elect Trump on a joint assessment, draft and coordinated among the Central Intelligence Agency, FBI, and National Security Agency, that concluded with high confidence that Russia had intervened in the election through a variety of means to assist Trump's candidacy and harm Clinton's. A declassified version of the assessment was publicly released that same day. Between mid-January 2017 and early February 2017, three congressional committees, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Senate Judiciary Committee, announced that they would conduct inquiries, or had already been conducting inquiries, into Russian interference in the election. Then FBI Director James Comey later confirmed to Congress the existence of the FBI's investigation into Russian interference that had begun before the election. On March 20, 2017, in open session testimony before HPSCI, Comey stated, 
I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. As with any counterintelligence investigation, this will also include an assessment of whether any crimes were committed. End of quote from Comey. The investigation continued under then-Director Comey for the next seven weeks until May 9, 2017, when President Trump fired Comey as FBI director, an action which is analyzed in Volume 2 of this report. On May 17, 2017, Acting Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed the special counsel and authorized him to conduct the investigation that Comey had confirmed in his congressional testimony, as well as matters arising directly from the investigation and any other matters within the scope of 28 CFR 604A, which generally covers efforts to interfere with or obstruct the investigation. President Trump reacted negatively to the special counsel's appointment. He told advisors that it was the end of his presidency and sought to have Attorney General Jefferson Sessions unrecuse from the Russia investigation and to have the special counsel removed and engaged in efforts to curtail the special counsel's investigation and prevent the disclosure of evidence to it, including through public and private contacts with potential witnesses. Those and related actions are described and analyzed in volume two of the report. The special counsel's charging decisions. In reaching the charging decisions described in volume one of the report, the office determined whether the conduct it found amounted to a violation of federal criminal law chargeable under the principles of federal prosecution. The standard set forth in the Justice Manual is whether the conduct constitutes a crime, if so, whether admissible evidence would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction, and whether prosecution would serve a substantial federal interest that would not be adequately served by prosecution elsewhere or through non-criminal alternatives. Section 5 of the report provides detailed explanations of the office's charging decisions, which contain three main components. First, the office determined that Russia's two principal interference operations in the 2016 presidential election, the social media campaign and the hacking and dumping operations, violated U.S. criminal law. Many of the individuals and entities involved in the social media campaign have been charged with participating in a conspiracy to defraud the United States by undermining, through deceptive acts, the work of federal agencies charged with regulating foreign interference in U.S. elections, as well as related counts of identity theft. It's the Mueller Report. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold you're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Dr. Richard Wolff is with us. He is The Economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. Democracyatwork.info is the website, rdwolf.com too. Wolf with two Fs is a Twitter handle, Prof Wolf. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here, Tom. So uh, two questions. First, I'm curious your thoughts on the situation with the Fed. Apparently there's two seats open. Donald Trump has uh, nominated a couple of clearly crackpots, you know, uh, Herman Cain and Stephen Moore. Both of them are now out. Uh, where do you think that's going to go? And then number two, I wanted to get into modern monetary theory with you. But first, your thoughts on the actual news of the day. Well, I think you're right. Crackpot is as good a name as any to imagine that Herman Cain and this fellow Moore, that this is the best you can do, is, is an insult to the American people as a whole, to the banking community, to the economics community. It, it is the kind of insult you have to work hard not to uh, feel and smart under. It, it's astonishing. But the real situation is not that these are poor candidates, which they are. The real issue is Mr. Trump wants people who will do what he tells them to do. And he's made it crystal clear in the last few days, as before, that he wants the Federal Reserve to be a booster for his reelection. And the way he wants that done is for the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates. He, he demanded it before their latest meeting, that is at, over the last weekend and the beginning of this week, by telling them to lower interest rates by a full percentage point. Which, which is more than they would ever have imagined to do. He demanded it. He attacked and insulted uh, Mr. Powell again for the umpteenth time. The Federal Reserve, to its credit, ignored him and didn't uh, lower the interest rates uh, at all, kept them the same. But all that he's trying to do is pack the Fed with his people so that they will vote to lower the interest rates, making it cheaper for businesses and individuals to borrow, because that'll boost the economy the way the tax cut of December uh, 2017 did. And that's all that he's doing. He's trying to control the situation to get reelected. All the rest of it is uh, secondary and covered over with the thinnest of rationalization veneers. Yeah, it's uh, not a good thing. So modern monetary theory, this is becoming actually a point of contention within the Democratic Party. Stephanie Kelton, one of the most outspoken right. persons in this area, or experts in this area, she's been on this program many times over the years, was Bernie's chief economics advisor for a couple of years. And I, I'm not sure if she still is. What are your thoughts on modern monetary theory? How would you summarize it, first off, for people who don't know what we're talking about? And then, you know, is it a good idea? Is it crazy? What is it? In your opinion. Okay, yeah, let me try very briefly to summarize it. In all courses in money and banking, which are taught as a routine matter in every college and university, literally in the United States, the story about money goes roughly like this. Money is controlled by the Federal Reserve. It has the authority to literally to print the dollar bills or the hundred dollar bills, to mint the coins, and to circulate them into the economy in a variety of ways. The Federal Reserve is partly a creature of government and partly a creature of the private banking system in the United States. It has an independence because leaving money in the hands of politicians purely and simply proved to be very dangerous for the economy of the United States. 
even though leaving it in the hands of private banks, which is the way we did it before the government was brought in, also proved to be extremely dangerous. And the reason for that is important to remember. Leaving the control of the money supply in the hands of banks whose first priority is their own bottom line, profit for their shareholders, big bucks for their leading executives, means that you're doing something that we all depend on. It's a social thing, the money supply, and leaving it in the hands of people who look at it as a source of private profit is a recipe for the disasters that made us bring the government in. So with that as the background, here's how it works, or at least this is the idea. The federal government prints the money, literally the dollars and the coins. Those then are deposited in banks by people who want safekeeping in the bank. The bank now has the money in its hands and has the legal right to lend part of that money out. It keeps part of it in the bank as a security, as a reserve, but it lends the money out. That's where you get the phrase, banks are institutions that lends out other people's money. That's literally correct. It's other people put the money in as a deposit, and the bank lends it out. That's the idea. That's what we teach. Here's the problem. Modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton and her associates, who used to be grouped mainly at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, a group of very intelligent, very creative economists, basically did research and said there's a fundamental flaw here. Banks have for all their history not done what the theory teaches people they do. And here's what they meant. When a bank issues a loan, nowadays all that it does is create an account for the recipient of the loan, and then the bank deposits into that account the amount of money that they have lent to the borrower. In other words, the bank is not dependent on other people putting deposits in because the bank creates not only the loan based on the deposit, but on the deposit itself. And the criticism of the modern monetary theorists is we should never have, and we should not now, put the control of the money supply so utterly into the hands of the banks for all the reasons of the historical record of how they then mismanaged it mm -hmm. uh, that led us to bring the government in. That's the first kind of critical impulse behind this theory. The second, and that's all that I have to say about it, the second is they have a proposal. Since creating loans and creating deposits is done more or less in the same act, we should have the creation of money brought back under the complete control of the government. They are in favor of that. They think that the democratic control of the government is a much better reliable source of managing the money than putting it in the hands, as we now do, of private banks. So they want the government, basically, when it spends money, to literally create the money it uses to buy things, whether it's infrastructure or paying military salaries or building roads or, or you know, all of that, that the government will print the money it needs to do its business, 
And if it turns out that they've printed more money than there are goods and services uh, to pay for so that they drive up prices, that's where an inflation can occur, then the government can use its taxing power to pull the money out of the economy, just as it will use its printing power to put the money in. And in both cases, the notion is that a democratic process of controlling the government assures us that the money supply will be increased or decreased as needed by the society as a whole and not as dictated by the profit considerations of private banks. That's their basic idea, and there's been an enormous debate because obviously if you're a conservative, you want to keep it in the hands of banks, or at least most of them do. Whereas if you're a more liberal or leftist, then the notion that the government, uh, hopefully democratically controlled, does this is more appealing to you. And that fight is being had not only inside the Democratic Party, uh, but in the pages of our financial press, as one or another famous economist uh, chooses his or her sides in this ongoing dispute. Right. Now, one of the conversations that I had with Stephanie Kelton some years ago, and I may be rem misremembering, but my understanding was, you know, we've got this big debt, the U.S. debt, and I didn't recall that she was calling for eliminating the Fed or anything like that, but basically the minting of coins uniquely is the province of the Treasury Department, not the Fed. The coins in your pocket are actually, and it's in the Constitution, which is why the Fed doesn't do coins. It only does uh, paper money and, and uh, digital money. Correct. And so, she, right, so she suggested that the Treasury could order the Mint to make $21 trillion coins and out of platinum, and not literally worth a trillion dollars worth of platinum, but just denominate them as a trillion dollars, and then deposit them with the Treasury on account and pay down the national debt and we would no longer have to pay interest on the debt and just that would just resolve that issue is that crazy no it's consistent with the notion that look if the government can print money as the way to get the money supply controlled print it and use it to buy things that the government needs our roads our schools and all the rest and then tax us to pull the money back out of the economy when that is necessary, then of course the government is no longer in hock to private lenders to the government. What happens now is that the government is pushed by politicians to lower taxes, because that's how they get reelected, but it has to at the same time provide all these services that both business and the public want, and it solves this absurd contradiction by borrowing money. And so we have a bigger and bigger debt. It's now in the many trillions of dollars, our national debt. It burdens us. And the whole idea is maybe with modern monetary theory, if the government just prints the money and uses it as needed, it won't have to borrow more. And it could use that capacity to retire the old debt too. That's one of the positive aspects of this idea that is being argued. And then, of course, on the other side, there are people who are looking... Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Sorry, we got stepped on, Dr. Wolf, real quick. It's just a, it's a real question whether the government could be trusted, given its subordination to private business, right. to manage... Great, great point. Dr. Richard Wolf.
Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. On the line with us is a guy who knows a lot about why somebody might, maybe should be impeached. He is the former chief White House ethics lawyer for several years, from 2005 to 2007, under George W. Bush, a former Republican, a current law professor at the University of Minnesota, Richard Painter. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So I understand that you're calling for the explicit opening that the Judiciary Committee, uh, Jerry Nadler's committee and the U.S. House of Representatives should open hearings and specifically call them impeachment hearings, presumably so that they'll get those Article Three powers and essentially be a grand jury and, and begin the process. What's your case? Well, the case is laid out in the second half of the uh, Mueller report on obstruction of justice. It's very clearly obstruction of justice that President Trump engaged in. Whether it could be criminally charged by the Department of Justice is a complex uh, constitutional question, because, one, the Department of Justice is not willing to indict a sitting president for anything. That's their position. And second, there's some questions about whether it's actually a crime for the president to terminate investigation by the FBI or the Justice Department into himself, because he can terminate any investigation he wants. So say believers in the so-called unitary executive theory. Well, that's a constitutional question that would have been resolved if Richard Nixon had not gotten a pardon and been tried for obstruction of justice. But where we are now is that Robert Mueller was not willing to urge the Justice Department to indict a president in circumstances where the Justice Department made it very clear that under its interpretation of the Constitution, he could not be criminally indicted. But impeachment is a whole different matter. And uh, the Mueller report very clearly indicates that that's a matter, that portion of the report on obstruction of justice is for the House Judiciary Committee to consider. I believe that even the unredacted portions of the Mueller report are far more than what we need to go ahead and impeach the president and charge him and then have a trial in the Senate where additional evidence can be obtained. And that's on top of all the other problems with this presidency, such as the foreign government emoluments and violation of the United States Constitution, the threats the president has made toward a free press and violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution. The list of serious high crimes and misdemeanors goes on and on. So this is a situation where the House Judiciary Committee does need to vote out articles of impeachment so this can proceed to the Senate. 
The Office of Legal Counsel is basically the lawyer for the Justice Department. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. And, and back in 1973, during the Nixon administration, ironically, they concluded that the Justice Department can't indict a sitting president. I believe that has been reaffirmed once since then. What are your thoughts on that determination by the OLC? That seems crazy to me. Yeah, that's a determination that also legal counsel, which does give legal advice interpreting the Constitution and the statutes as it believes it should be interpreted. And sometimes that advice is good, sometimes it's not. They had the infamous torture memos in the uh, Bush administration before I went to the White House, I should emphasize. Mm-hmm. And they've had also a reversal on um, the issue of the uh, anti-nepotism statute. The same office, OLC, told Jimmy Carter he couldn't have his son be an intern in the White House. And then they turned around and told Donald Trump he could hire Jared and Ivanka. So they have changed their position on a number of things, including the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And uh, here also, uh, they've taken a position. Now here is consistent, I guess, what they were doing under Nixon, saying that you could not indict a sitting president. The constitutional theory behind that is that if a president commits a crime, it's up to the Congress to impeach him and remove him. Then he could be indicted for the crime as opposed to the prosecutors going and indicting the president uh, when he has not yet been impeached, and that it would somehow interfere with his ability to uh, conduct his... Uh, you know, I read a fragment of that OLC finding, and they, where they went through this long thing about how the president has such great responsibilities and such great burdens and, and so many demands on his time, and, and uh, therefore we don't want to... You know, it would actually... The argument, as I read it, was that it would actually put the country at risk if the president wasn't able to do his job because he was distracted by a criminal indictment. The guy in the White House right now is spending literally six to eight hours a day watching television and tweeting and has spent more time on the golf course in a year and a half than any president in the history of the United States. It just doesn't seem that that rationalization or at least that particular piece of the rationalization, the OLC memo, makes any sense in this context. Well, it certainly doesn't with this president. And I got to say that one very important case that's undermined uh, at least some of that rationale is Jones versus Clinton, where the U.S. Supreme Court did decide that president could be sued in a civil suit despite being president. Uh, and Paula Jones was allowed to proceed with her suit. And I find it somewhat troubling, the notion that a president could be sued civilly over an alleged sexual harassment years ago in Arkansas while he's sitting in the White House, that that's not too much of a burden on the presidency. And yet if a president obstructs justice while he's in the White House or engages in any other crimes, that somehow a criminal prosecution of the president for those crimes would be too much of a distraction. So we have yet to see how that would play out, whether the Jones versus Clinton case would change any of that analysis. But OLC has stuck to its guns. Of course, OLC is doing pretty much what President Trump wants it to do. And uh, that's the position they've taken. So the bottom line is no federal prosecutor would have the ability to charge President Trump if the attorney general won't let them do it. And this attorney general is not going to let them do it. So so that's why Robert Mueller really had no choice. He, He couldn't recommend an indictment of the president. That was just not an option on the table. Yeah, I get it. So what are your thoughts on the impeachment of William Barr? The previous attorney general, 
I mean, the Obama Attorney General uh, Eric Holder was held in contempt of Congress for refusing to turn over the Fast and Furious documents. His rationale was that Congress was going to release these to the public and that that would compromise an ongoing investigation into gun running down on a southern border. You know, he felt that it was just being politicized. And they held him in contempt of Congress. It went to the courts. It took six years to litigate, as I recall. I don't think we can wait six years. I mean, isn't an impeachment of Bill Barr in order? Well, I, I think there are two sets of issues. One is refusing to turn over documents, uh, uh, which is what happened in the Eric Holder case, and we have some of that going on here, too, where they're refusing to turn over the unredacted version of the Mueller report. Right. I do have to say, I think that uh, turning over an unredacted version of this report about a Russian attack on our, our electoral system is, is a lot more important than, you know, all that stuff is going on with Fast and Furious, which was more about politics. But the real, uh, you know, we can debate about, though, whether impeachment is appropriate remedy for a refusal to comply with a single subpoena. Uh, but uh, Bill Barr has another problem, is he may not have been truthful to Congress in his discussion, at least of his contacts with Robert Mueller and what Robert Mueller thought about the summary of the Mueller report, the four-page summary that Bill Barr put out. And if he was not truthful to Congress, that is a very serious offense. And generally, the attorneys general has had to resign over that. Isn't that what uh, what, what, what Mitchell, uh, Attorney General Mitchell in the Nixon administration went to prison for 19 months for? Yeah, he went to prison for 19 months. His successor, Attorney General Kleindine, did lie to Congress basically about what President Nixon had told him about the ITT investigation. So Kleindine was forced to resign pled guilty to a lower criminal offense than perjury, but did plead guilty to criminal offense. We had the situation under President Bush with Alberto Gonzalez gave an inaccurate testimony about what happened with the firing of the U.S. attorneys. Now, he may very well have not been adequately prepared over at the Justice Department for his congressional hearing. Uh, he was never charged with anything, but he did resign in the wake of that. And here again, we have an attorney general whose candor, a lack of candor, to Congress is a very serious problem. We already had this with Jeff Sessions, who didn't tell the truth and answered to Senator Franken's question about the Russians. And, uh, you know, I think that if, if Attorney General Barr lied, which is what Nancy Pelosi said, uh, that, you know, flat out lie to Congress wouldn't be an impeachment Right. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Richard Painter. Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Great talking with you. In our special members-only video rant this week, we're talking about the bizarre hormone-disrupting chemicals like bisphenol A and phthalates and things like that that are associated with metabolic disorders, with cancers, with childhood cancers, just a whole spectrum of things that are problems can be caused by these disruptive chemicals. And it turns out that bottled water appears to be one of the principal sources of this. This uh, study was done out of the University, uh, Medical University of Vienna in Austria, and uh, they looked at stool samples of humans from four different continents and found that all of them had microplastic in it. It can get into your lymph system, it can get into your liver, it can get into your brain. This is nasty, nasty stuff. So check it out at TomHartman.com and Patreon.com slash TomHartman. In our special members-only video rant this week, we're talking about the bizarre hormone-disrupting chemicals like bisphenol A and 
phthalates and things like that that are associated with metabolic disorders, with cancers, with childhood cancers, just a whole spectrum of things that are problems can be caused by these disruptive chemicals. And it turns out that bottled water appears to be one of the principal sources of this. This uh, study was done out of the University, uh, Medical University of Vienna in Austria, and uh, they looked at stool samples of humans from four different continents and found that all of them had microplastic in it. It can get into your lymph system, it can get into your liver, it can get into your brain. This is nasty, nasty stuff. So check it out at TomHartman.com and Patreon.com slash TomHartman. Welcome back. Uh, Donald in Aurora, Illinois. Hey, Donald, what's up? Hi, Tom. I caught part of what you were saying about their dismantling the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, if I could just if I could just recap that real quickly, Donald, before you go off on a rant about it, because you know it, it was it's been about a half hour since we talked about it, and people tune in and people tune away, and just so people know what we're talking about. Yesterday, while everybody was paying attention to Bill Barr, the Trump administration filed a lawsuit uh, in the Fifth Circuit Court of New, of, uh, of you know federal court. It's now it's based in New Orleans. Um, uh, trying to push forward, there, there was a judge in Texas, 17 Republican states said the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is unconstitutional. Donald Trump, of course, is trying to do everything he can to destroy everything that Barack Obama accomplished so that there's absolutely no legacy left for America's first black president. This right-wing federal judge in Texas said, yep, it's unconstitutional. The Democrats appealed that. It's now gone to the, the Fifth Circuit Court. Whichever way it goes in the Fifth Circuit Court, it's no doubt going to go to the Supreme Court, and then we'll see. But what the Republicans are trying to do is say, we're going to end the protections for, uh, for pre-existing conditions. We're going to end the things that say your insurance company can't cut you off because you get sick. We're going to end the 20% the cap on, on insurance company profits. Um, and... Uh, I don't remember what else, but basically, oh, and 20 million people who are, you know, low-income working people who are uh, getting Medicaid, they're all going to lose their coverage. Uh, so, you know, we're going to go back to the bad old days. Off to you, Donald. Oh, okay. Now, uh, you know, it really gets me if they do this, and, you know, I have a Republican family, and all the time when President Obama was uh, putting in the ACA, they were pointing their finger in my face. You know, if they take, if they do this, I want it to affect these Republicans that are on and that have insurance. Oh, it will. will. Oh, I definitely hope so. But the problem is, is if they start blaming the Democrats like they always do, because they stay on top of it and Trump already puts up, starts changing the message that the Democrats are responsible for this. The Democrats got to get on board right now and start letting them have it. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, it's not just Trump. It is the, in fact, it wasn't Trump who initiated this. It was the Republican governors and their attorneys general in 17 Republican states. And it used to be 18, but when Wisconsin's, uh, you know, got a Democratic governor, uh, then they pulled out of it. But there you go, Donald. It's oh, this well, is one, 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 more, one more question. Will this affect Medicare or Social Security? Uh, I don't believe so. I'm, I, you know, although there were some things in the Affordable Care Act that lengthened the viability of the Medicare program, I don't think it'll have anything to do with Social Security. Donald, thanks for the call. Hey, thank you.
Welcome back. Let's check in with Luke Vargas and talk media news and find out what's going on in the world today. Uh, Luke's the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. He joins us from New York. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And uh, Luke also does a two-minute podcast that you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Luke, Trump's national security team met with the Pentagon officials today to discuss Venezuela. Also, Trump is uh, telling the media that he had an hour-long phone conversation with Putin this morning and that President Putin said that he was not going to stop Donald Trump from intervening in Venezuela or words to that effect, or at least that's my understanding just from, you know, what I've read and, and looking at the chirons on TV. What the hell is going on here? So let's talk first. The acting defense secretary, Patrick Shanahan, met today with Pompeo and Bolton alongside the head of the Navy in the Southern Command, Admiral Craig Fowler. And what they basically said is that, you know, according to the Associated Press, they reviewed and refined military planning and options for responding to the crisis, end quote. And I would say it's worth just sort of putting out there that this phrase, you know, all options are on the table, can either mean something really is being considered seriously, but let's just be careful and acknowledge it's also a truism about politics that doesn't necessarily mean anything in and of itself. That most politicians will say all options are on the table, even if nothing is really being planned. Sure. And it's worth pointing out we have seen from reports back in late February, early March, that it was reported that the bulk of the U.S. military planning vis-a-vis Venezuela in the last few months considered plans to extract U.S nationals from the country, as well as American diplomats. And those diplomats were all withdrawn in March, which I think sort of possibly could explain why the Pentagon officials have had so many meetings on Venezuela. And yet you look at some of the sort of political incitement, if you will, to, you know, try to drum up concerns that the Venezuelan crisis is a disproportionately threatening one. And there's also a lot to be worried of. I mean, you can brush off all those things you want and maybe even say, you know, especially if there are any Russian personnel on the ground, Trump would never go and do anything in Venezuela. And no one, none of the neighbors, Colombia or Brazil are in favor of military action. So this would need to be extraordinarily unilateral. And yet you're still hearing a larger group of people than just, let's say, Cuba hawks who are talking about this seriously. Marco Rubio just saying the other day that we're basically proud as America to be able to project our military power anywhere. You have the FAA putting flight restrictions over Venezuela. You even had Republican Mario Diaz-Bayart from Florida saying on the Tucker Carlson program the other day that Russia had already deployed nuclear weapons to Venezuela, which is an incredibly unfounded claim. He had no evidence to suggest this. He's trying to create Um, a Cuban Missile Crisis environment. He is, and clearly they're completely different. And yet, when I then saw a statement from the Navy Admiral, who again is sort of in charge of the military planning here, where the other day he said, Venezuela is quintessentially an issue of freedom versus tyranny, end quote. I mean, that's a concern. It's concerning when you see military planners who are supposed to just sort of uh, approach these things objectively, buying kind of hook, line, and sinker into the ideological framing of this issue. I don't right. believe from any of the sort of signals intelligence that we're picking up on that there is anything imminent. But you look towards 2020, you know, and, and you just worry that all these people are laying, not again, not a military groundwork, but a political groundwork, so that if at some point Trump, in the heat of a re-election campaign, when socialism is on the agenda, wants to really try and fight socialism in the flesh, One worries that these little crumbs we're seeing right now could be part of the ideological argument made at that later date. Well, and let's not forget, in in 2010, Trump tweeted that any day now, Barack Obama is going to start a war because the elections are coming. I mean, he thinks that way. 
Exactly. That scares the hell out of me, Luke. Luke Vargas, uh, Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. And check out Luke's podcast. It's great. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today and this week. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us. And that includes you and, frankly, everybody you know. You know tell them about progressive media. Tell them what's going on. Get out there. Get active. Tag. You're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.